Welcome to another edition of Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. Today is June 14th, 2016, and this is the first summer edition of our normal monthly uh, program, Faith and Practice, with Dr. Joseph Piper. He is the president of Greenville Seminary. Uh, for longtime listeners, of course, you know that. For new listeners, um, Dr. Piper takes questions from the listeners each month and um, deals with them on the air. And one of the advantages to this program, of course, is that you get, as it were, a seminary education for nothing. And as a bonus, uh, if you submit a question and we use it on the air, you receive um, a $10 off coupon to the Banner of Truth online web store. So um, get involved. You can do so very easily at our website, confessingourhope.com. There's a form there. Fill it out. Send it in. And uh, we'll deal with the question um, as as they come in. So that's a little bit of a background for those who are new to the program. Let me tell everybody a little bit about what's coming up on the program. I'm going to do that up front today instead of at the very end. Um, next week, I'm going to be sitting down with uh, Dr. Alan Harmon. He wrote a book on the call to the Christian ministry. It's a book that the seminary puts out, um, gives out to new students here at the seminary, their first year here. And so um, look forward to that discussion you in Australia? next week. A- yeah. You're good. Yep. It'll be a five o'clock at night interview <laughs> for me, <laughs> 10 o'clock in the morning for him the next day. Yep. So it's very interesting. So that's a little bit of what's coming up, and we're working on some other things as well. So um, look forward to that on the program. If you want to find out more information about the seminary, uh, you can go to our website, gpts.edu. So Dr. Pipe, it's good to have you back. You just, just came back in from Italy. So why don't you tell the listeners maybe a quick summary of that before we jump into the questions. Okay, Bill, thank you. But before I do that, why don't I pray? Absolutely. Father in heaven, we bless you that you are the great God of the covenant, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God who's chosen us and redeemed us and brought us into covenant. Lord, you are faithful and good, and we love you. We thank you for your word. We thank you that it's the Spirit who inspired the Scriptures, who illumines our understanding, We pray, Lord, that you'd be honored today in our discussion and that you would give grace and insight for Christ's sake. Amen. Amen. Well, we got home last night about 9.30 from Italy. We go every year in June. Seminary has a graduate, Mike Cuneo, who is uh, working at a Presbyterian church plant about uh, 45 miles north of Rome, 60 miles north of the uh, Rome airport. Uh, it's a work that uh, we had gotten involved in about 13 years ago because the man who was the pastor of a Plymouth Brethren Church became convicted of Presbyterian theology and, and the covenant. He started studying some with us. My wife and I went over in about 11 years ago to encourage them to do the Lord's Supper, and that's when uh, I got the idea of recruiting Mike to go. Mike is sent out by uh, Calvary Presbytery, the Presbytery here of the PCA, and under a session of a local church. Uh, This was our sixth trip since Mike's been there. Uh, We go, we do have some vacation time and spend a few days uh, doing some uh, traveling. This time we went up to Verona, and part of that was to minister to a couple up there, a missionary couple that had been struggling a bit. So we spent some time, particularly with with the man. And then in Viterbo, I uh, preached uh, Sunday, two weeks, Sunday the uh, 5th, uh, and then a Bible study on Sunday the 5th, I preached on the Great Commission, then the Bible study Thursday night on baptism. And then we did a mini-conference uh, Saturday night and Sunday where I continue on the theme of the church, looking at uh, the glory of the church from Psalm 87 and the um, ascension of Christ and the mission of the church, then the importance of church membership and officers from 1 Thessalonians 5, and then on spiritual conversation. We had about 30 people at the Thursday night meeting, 20-something. Um, I mean, on Saturday night meeting, 20-something on the Lord's Day. Saturday night, we had about five unconverted people. We also had some wonderful conversations walking about, and one lady that we met actually through a window um, had us up for coffee. Uh, she claims to be an evangelical. She came then Sunday morning. Uh, and so a number of places to, to get to witness as well. So it was probably, I was telling my wife this morning, 
it was probably the most spiritually useful trip that we've had so far. And the church has about tripled now in membership. We took in four members uh, this past Lord's Day, uh, two professions of faith with baptism and two um, recommitments, reconfirmation of faith, reaffirmation of faith. And so we've got now about uh, 13 or 14 members, and we're very excited to see Mm -hmm. that. Perhaps getting some more mature members, that's been the, the great difficulty. So pray for that work in Viterbo, Mike Cuneo. If you want to do more or no more, contact me here at the seminary. Uh, we are still looking for uh, individuals and churches to uh, support that work as well. Absolutely. Now, if you want to see some of the pictures, um, a- as well as other things that Dr. Piper has put out, you can always go to his website. It's josephpiper.com. Very simple to remember josephpiper.com and there's a there's actually a whole photo gallery there of his most recent trip uh, Verona Viterbo in the area so um, as well as a blog describes the trip yep. I've got to update it today but so yep. wait until tonight to go look at it or, or look at it twice look at it now and that's then look at it that's if you're live <laughs> yeah that's right that's right if you're live if you're not live look at it now because We're it'll never. be updated by the time it comes out this comes out um, in the recording so that's very good and, and as Dr. Piper said do be praying for that work over there it's very important and it's a very dark area um, as you can might, might imagine so alright well let's um, I guess we'll, we'll get right into this que- the questions the first one um, Dr. Piper came in through Twitter which is uh, always good to see because uh, they have to be smaller <laughs> um, doesn't mean they're less important don't, or even less full the longer people. no no I'm not I just right. it's easier to read shorter questions of course on the air so here's the question um, and I and I don't know I can't remember where it came from I have it but anyway here's the question what are Dr. Piper's views on libertarianism as a political theory and the libertarian party separately well libertarianism has a number of good aspects as I understand it in terms of constitutionalism a very limited government trying to hold the government accountable uh, for the areas constitutionally and really, I think, biblically uh, that are assigned uh, to government. Uh, I have a difficulty in that libertarian political theory, uh, I think, tends to fail to distinguish uh, between what is a crime and what is a sin. And so they would be much uh, more loose on public acts of immorality saying that the government should just leave that to um, individuals. And there's a cross-section there everywhere from uh, drug use, uh, prostitution, to homosexuality or abortion. There's not any one, I think, particular uh, position there on uh, on these things. And then they tend to um, be uh, very much non-interventionist hmm. in um, na- international affairs, which, again, uh, is good but needs balance. Our borders are no longer borders that can be attacked from offshore. They can be attacked from 1,000, 2,000 miles away. So I I agree with them that we shouldn't be kingdom builders, but on the other hand, I think we have to take national defense in a different way than our forefathers would have done even 60 or 75 years ago. So as a party, then, I would have difficulty because some of their platforms – uh, parts of their platform would go these directions. Uh, also, um, uh, a third party or even a fourth party, a constitutional party, a libertarian party, uh, tend to uh, water down the conservative vote. I think that, for example, the, the last gubernatorial election in Virginia, uh, the, the conservative lost by uh, a smaller margin than the either the Constitutional Libertarian Party got. I'm, I don't mind more parties. I think they should start working at the grassroots level mm-hmm. and get candidates in local office. I agree with Rush Dooney, who pointed out that really county government is the most important part of government, and you can do a lot of good there. So um, that's just uh, actually you get what you pay for on that one because my opinions uh, amount to nothing on libertarianism or Libertarian Party. Right. Well, thanks for the question. It, it's, um, of course, we're in election year, and well, we'll probably get more questions on the election as we get closer to it, and and it would encourage that actually. Uh, Michael writes in from Seattle, Washington, and he has a question regarding the covenant status of our children. Covenant children say, okay. 
His question is, should we view our covenant children as in Adam or in Christ? Do they need to be born again or presumed regenerate? Thank you, uh, Michael. Um, it's an important question, and it's got a number of uh, subparts to it. Our covenant children are in the covenant under Christ headship. Uh, I think Paul uh, makes that clear when he says they're holy. The old Westminster Directory of Worship said that they're federally Christian. And so uh, because of their membership in the covenant household, they are members of the church, and their baptism reflects that solemn admission into the church. So they're not in Adam. Um, <clears throat> I think that's very important to remember. That does not mean that all of them are or even would be converted. Uh, I would refer you to Burkhoff, who I think does the, the finest succinct discussion of uh, the dual membership in the covenant. Um, he prefers the word legal and living uh, I like external and internal as well as living and legal. And so covenant children are all legally in the covenant, as are people who make professions of faith. A difference between credo-baptist and uh, paedo-baptist, those who believe only in professor's baptism and those who believe in infant baptism, is that most credo-baptists baptize a person because he's regenerate. But Man cannot know the heart. The Bible is very clear about that. And so you're baptizing the person on the basis of a credible profession of faith. All of them are not regenerate. For example, Simon the magician, or we would assume Demas. So um, we're not presuming that uh, they're regenerate when we baptize them, and we're not presuming that the uh, child is regenerate. We take them a credible profession of faith, and we give charitable um, concurrence to that and if the person grows and it becomes obvious that he has been born again if he doesn't if he begins to renounce the faith or live in sin we got the process of church discipline eventually if he continued in sin um, he would be put out of the church so with our children um, we don't presume them to be regenerate that is a position put forth by Abraham Kuyper for example that we baptize children presuming that they are born again. No, we baptize children because they are members of the covenant legally. But they must be born again in order to become living partakers of the covenant and its full blessing. That can happen in the womb. That can happen in infancy and uh, toddlership, adolescence, whatever. Or it might not happen at all in God's sovereign purposes. I think that certainly the great, great, great majority of our covenant children are granted uh, God's saving grace. So when we deal with our children then, uh, and you could simply say it's a matter of uh, linguistics or splitting hairs, I do not like to use the word to evangelize them. Because for me that term implies someone outside the covenant. I want to do covenant nurture, which does uh, treat them as those who are under Christ's headship, speaks to them about sin and the necessity of regeneration and of trusting in Christ alone, but not treating them as pagans. And so, for example, we teach them to pray, to sing, to take part in family and covenant worship. I actually have a sermon that somebody, I think on this program, actually just mentioned a while back from uh, Romans 9 on the benefits of the covenant in our children. I assume that is available um, on sermon audio. So that's in Romans 9. So thank you, Michael. Yes, very good question. And thanks again for writing in. I know you're a longtime um, listener to the program. Our next question um, comes in from Adam. He writes in from West Virginia. And he has a question related to the doctrine of justification, and the question is simply: How do you feel? Uh, how do you? I'm sorry. How do you feel? Federal vision is wrong on justification. Adam, thank you. My students call me the grammar police. I'm just going to help you develop to be a clear thinker. Uh, feel is not the verb you want to use here. We want to use the word. What do you think? Or what do you believe? Uh, so, 
He, he is a grammar Nazi. It's, it, it, don't feel bad. I mean, I, I'm sitting across from him, and I'm reading the question just as it was sent. And you caught <laughs> and, on. And I thought, oh, boy. <laughs> but anyway, yeah, I still can embarrass you. I'm 50 years old. I still get whacked Nobody by Dr. Nobody knows who Piper. you are by your first name. But, so. but anyway. All right. <laughs> so it's a very important question. It is. And that's the, the, the crux of the matter. Federal vision, uh, which does have nuances and variants, but when most of the men deal with justification, they, in the first place, don't see a covenant of works and a covenant of grace. Adam Adam was in covenant. If Adam had obeyed, uh, he would have been justified in that covenant. Because he sinned, he had to uh, be pardoned, uh, and that carries over now to us. So because we're sinners, we have to be pardoned. So in justification, God pardons our sins by imputing to us the work of Christ on Calvary's cross. So it was death, burial, and resurrection. But one continues in justification through faithfulness. So they will say that justification is not by faith alone, but by faithfulness. And so that our righteous standing is connected to our covenant obedience. And I think that is the the, the crux of the problem uh, with the federal vision, at least as it's set forth by some of its more uh, visible uh, proponents. I'm not saying everyone who connects with federal vision uh, would say that. But if you read uh, uh, a number of uh, articles, blog pieces and, and such by uh, uh, a number of these men, I think you will find that that, that is the difference. So that as our confession say, says, justification is by faith alone, but faith is not alone. So we don't downplay the importance of good works. Uh, if one has been born again, one's in union with Christ, that leads to the faith. Uh, our faith leads us to union with Christ, and uh, we are going to obey and we're going to grow in holiness. But we never contribute to our standing. Paul uses the perfect tense in Romans 5, therefore having been justified by faith. We have peace with God, and he talks in about our standing that we have, which is a permanent standing that we have with God. And and there's lots of resources, Adam, on this subject, um, particularly... um, I, I don't know. I, well, actually, I do know how Dr. Piper feels about blog posts on theology. I'm sorry, believes. Thanks. <laughs> See, thanks. Not uh, about blog. I have no about blog posts. Well, it's it's not that they're they're wrong. I have um, trouble with theological discussion. That's what I, where I was going. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, I, I think on these kinds of subjects that have troubled the church, frankly, over the last number of years, um, it would be better to read theological works that are well-developed arguments, not just an, an article that someone bangs out overnight. And Guy Waters has a good book critiquing it. Uh, we're posting, uh, on, I think, on our catacomb in our electronic magazine. Uh, one of our students a year ago wrote a very fine critique of Federal Vision, maybe longer ago than that now. So there's a number of things available. The reports of both the Presbyterian Church in America and the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, and I think the Reformed Church U.S. all are very useful as well. Yeah, I think there was five reports, the NAPARC congregation, and NAPARC denominations that denounced it. And but so, just also explain it. That's the yeah, important thing. And they explain all the ins and outs of these things. And 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 it, this is just me, um, but I think the federal vision is is a lot like nailing Jello to the wall in a lot of ways. It, it's hard to pin them down on very precise definitions. Uh, they use the terms, but they don't mean them the same way. So, and it's important to understand that when you ask somebody who holds to a federal vision position, do you believe in the doctrine of justification by faith alone? They'll say yes. They don't mean justification the way you, the way Paul means it in Romans, and that's and, and that's the important thing. You've got to press that and make them explain it. Otherwise, it, it just sounds the same, and it's not. Anyway, all right, we'll get off that subject. It's been beat to death, um, I think, over the years. The next question, go ahead. It's always an important question. Well, it is an important question. What I, I don't mean it's that's boring. I mean it's just it's been dealt with. The uh, a lot over the years. 
anyway. But a lot of people are new to it still. That's, that's true. Okay. That's true. All right. Um, Jack writes in um, through Twitter again, and he asks, why should God be wrathful towards stubborn sin if he can unilaterally, irresistibly correct it at any time? Jack, that's a question that I often ask him. <laughs> Yeah, I don't think there uh, is uh, an answer to it outside that God does his holy will and he always does what is good. I think we should use as an argument with God in prayer that he alone can correct a sinner, uh, convict, convert, and uh, plead with him to do what he alone can do. We have to always hold in balance God's sovereignty and uh, man's responsibility. The Bible teaches us to do that. At the end of the day, God's will is perfect, and even through stubborn sin, Mm -hmm. he is accomplishing holy purposes. And that's why he bears long with sin, why he has foreordained it to take place. And so we, we don't assert human responsibility over against divine sovereignty. That is Arminianism. We don't assert divine sovereignty over against responsibility that is hyper-Calvinism. As in most cases, the Westminster Confession of Faith, in this instance, its chapter on providence is very balanced in its approach to that. But it is a question that uh, we should ask God in prayer, and it is an argument we can use with God in prayer. How do you, uh, well, let's, let's talk about Orlando then, in relationship to, obviously it was a wicked, sinful act, well, you want to move to the Orlando question? Yeah, well, yeah, I, I'm tying them together, of course. Right, but let's go um, ahead and do it. And I think the question that that came was, you know, what is the what should be the proper Christian response to the issue in Orlando, given all of the ins and outs of that particular issue? It's not just. Well, I'll admit I wrote the question, not because I don't know, um, but I think it's 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 on everybody's mind right now. Right. And I think it's it relates to God's sovereignty, His providence, His work. But I wrote it because it ties in a number of other issues, that not just simply an act of violence. There, it, it's being painted across the news as more than that um, with the LGBT community. Um, it's become a rallying point for them, and 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 so forth. So. How does that work? And I'm thinking of Luke 13, Tower of Shalom. Yeah, yeah. It's an issue that uh, is is very multifaceted, right? In our response to it, and part of that response must be marked by wisdom. So, for example, back at when 9/11, the TBN guy came out with something about God's judgment. Uh, I think everything he said was true, but it wasn't the time to say it. So I was in Italy when this happened, and I read two responses, and I I told my wife, I think actually both responses are true. One I thought was unwise and untimely. The first response was actually from um, the uh, surgeon that was the uh, Ben. um, Oh, William Bennett? No, the the black surgeon. Oh, was the, uh, I can't believe you forgot his name. Ben Carson. Ben Carson. I got a little jet lag. Okay. Oh, that's, I'm sorry. <laughs> well, the, the reason I said that is, in fairness to Dr. Piper, he, he, he really likes Ben Carson, so I'm a little surprised. And so he but. posted a, a really excellent piece of praying for the families and the injured victims, talking about God's sovereignty in this. Oh. It was a brief thing, but it was, I think, right to the point that wasn't a thing about it that, that was unbiblical. In fact, it really affirmed the sovereignty of God, but came with passion, uh, excuse me, compassion, that if that should be, I think, our first response, so that people, uh, that God would show uh, mercy to families and to uh, injured people. Uh, my son was mentioning to me last night, coming home from the airport, that think probably a number of families were quite shocked to find out that they had a loved one that was hanging out at this bar. Uh, they got that shattered brokenness as well. And then uh, to pray that God would use this occasion to bring uh, uh, some of them, many of them, to repentance. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I think that love and compassion are, are the first response. But the other response I read was, and it was true, how God uses um, our enemies to destroy our enemies. 
So here's two groups that are seeking to destroy the church, and in God's providence, uh, they continue to uh, destroy each other. The same thing was true, you know, in, in Paris. Those were Satan um, worshipers, many of them, and right when the shooting began, were given the salute to Satan. The band is, was a Satanist band. And so there you've got um, Muslims killing Satanists. We have to look at that uh, in the big picture, that we, in, in, term of, uh, in terms of Proverbs, that God does these things and he is wise. Now that, A, doesn't mean that Christians will not be destroyed in these uh, types of things. So going back to Luke 13, we're not making individual judgments about people who die in violent uh, attacks like this. Uh, that's God's responsibility. We can make the general judgment that um, practicing homosexuals who refuse to repent and take hold of Christ are lost, but there could have been a Christian there who's struggling with that sin and fallen back into it. So even then, I'm not going to say everybody that died in that attack uh, was not converted. So later on, when we get to a point of some clear theological reflection, I think that it's, it's, it's good for us to note that God is sovereign and that um, he is, in any number of ways, going to deal with the enemies of his church, and the Church of Christ is not going to be wiped out by Muslims or uh, homosexual agenda or anything else. And then there's, of course, the whole widening effect of this mm -hmm. in our current political structure. We're now... Uh, interestingly, my wife showed me a piece this morning that uh, homosexuals are supporting Donald Trump because of his strong stand calling for justice um, uh, in opposition to President Obama, who blames guns and the violent temper of American people. So there's all kinds of things that are going to keep happening out of it as well. God is sovereign and in control. So... Um, you know, I guess that answers both questions then. Yeah, it, it's a – well, my opinions are beyond the scope of this program on this whole subject. Dr. Piper says it well, and, you know, as Christians, we don't need to fear what man is doing. Um, but it's it's grievous to see the nation going down this road. And, and it seems like they're going with – it seems like there's no control. Now, there is. Of course there is. We're Christians. We believe in the sovereignty of God. But it is still grievous. I'm an American citizen. I never thought I'd ever see the day this country would get to this place. Um, and while no one advocates as a Christian murder, I don't care what stripe you, in flavor of your life or lifestyle you hold, That's we're not advocating that. And, and But... To see it turn into a political issue, the way we're doing it, and and it's just it's just it's very, very interesting. Grievous. I read yesterday that um, uh, one of the men who was going to attack the gay pride parade in Los Angeles had a number of assault weapons in his trunk. Was actually a major uh, Sanders supporter. You're not going to hear that on the main line. No. Um, and, and by the way, just th those who who listen to the news um, an ar-15 is not an assault rifle just want to point that out look it up it's not an assault rifle i know you have to pull the trigger every time it, it has to have three two or three different options automatic fully automatic semi-automatic that kind of thing and there's other criteria um and an ar-15 has to be the trigger has to be pulled each time so it is not an assault weapon but it doesn't matter. Uh, yeah, it, it, well, anyway, <laughs> we could turn this into a political discussion very easily. Uh, well, I could. I'd probably get reined in, though. Um, but it does deal with both issues, and everybody's thinking about it right now. And, um, yeah, well, anyway, let's move on <laughs> quickly. <laughs> uh, George writes in from Texas. Um, he asks, um, this is a question. Um, well, I'm just going to read the question. Dr. Pipe, I wanted to know, your, in your opinion, when is the time for confessional Presbyterians to consider departing the PCA if they are put in the position to have their consciences bound to shifting theological views that, are, that they are convinced from Scripture and the standards are wrong? And what would you suggest as a hypothetical process to depart that 
to depart that honors both our ordination vows as well as how our consciences led by the scriptures are convinced. Now, this is a good question because we're one week away from the PCA General Assembly. Yeah, George, the PCA is the Presbyterian Church in America. Uh, the PCA was founded upon a, a commitment to the Westminster Confession of Faith and the uh, absolute uh, uh, infallibility of Scripture. So there are shifts that are occurring in the PCA on local levels. We've mentioned federal vision. We have a couple of presbyteries that uh, will not uh, find federal vision people guilty. And because of um, procedural issues, uh, the highest uh, court that deals with judicial cases did not uphold the um, complaint against those presbyteries, although the great majority of the men on that commission uh, do not believe in federal vision. And I think they made a wrong-headed decision, but again, that was their conscience. We have uh, evidently some people in the denomination who are teaching theistic evolution. Uh, we have a number of people pressing for uh, the ordination of women as deacons and giving them larger places at the table. And he means table. He doesn't mean the table. Okay, <laughs> just want to clarify. <laughs> so um, we've got, uh, I think it's quite possible in the denomination that there are some men who would have weak views of Scripture because both in our denomination and the Orthodox Presbyterian there was some men at another seminary that were teaching these positions over a couple of decades. And when that seminary was dealing with having to remove these men, these people wrote in their defense. And because of the integrity of that school, no presbytery would have thought to ask them about their view. And that's a mistake that we often make. You don't ever assume any school um, holds fast all the time. And so we could have some men that have a weak view of Scripture. But those are individuals. At this point, uh, although the General Assembly has done a number of uh, things that I think in the application of government are wrong uh, in terms of trying to streamline the assembly, and, and I think we started with the elders who came having much more say-so say in the operation of our committees. It's, it's reversed. Um, it's one of those committees that's recommending that we study again the matter of women deacons. But in this case, the General Assembly has never uh, uh, done an act that would have uh, warranted leaving. In my opinion, according to my conscience, that is not to look down on those who in conscience have had to leave already, or those that think that now is the time uh, to leave. And I also say that the church is never uh, going to be reformed from the top down. That's right. I have a saying, one congregation at a time, one day yep. at a time. So we, we seek God's blessing in congregations and then presbyteries. And then, uh, if God were to bless us, the general assembly. So, in my opinion, um, up to today... Uh, I, as a confessional Presbyterian, uh, do not in any way think, and here I could use the word feel, feel compelled in my conscience to, uh, to leave. Now, is now it, let me just jump in real quick, because as I mentioned, the GA for the PCA is next week, and, and, and encourage the listeners to be praying for that assembly pray for the committees that are going to work but the women's issue is back on the table again um in kind of a backdoor way frankly but it should be noted that in the number of times this has been attempted in one way or another over the last seven or eight years the assembly has 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 in a large majority said no we don't want this and so, I mean, we just want to be clear about that. It's not as though the PCA right. is teeter-tottering on the edge of ordaining women deacons, okay? Well, we have cases some, in the— Something else, though. In, in the past, if a, a confessional person 
brought up an issue again. Mm-hmm. We were always accused of, uh, you know, not listening, you know, beating dead horses and stuff like that. Right. On the other foot, these progressives, uh, they come from every angle possible with this ordination of women. And that's, that is simply the camel in nose in the door of the tent. You've seen it in every denomination. Now, there are a couple. Uh, the the Reformed Christian Church of North America that turned back, I think, liberalizing tendency. They still have women deacons. The ARP, it was happening. They have adjusted a great deal as as well. Um, and so, you know, we've got people, and we've got it's it's the progressive wing of the church is uh, it's virulent. It is poorly educated. It is uh, often not logical. So we have these crazy debates. For example, intinction, practice of the Greek Orthodox Church where the bread is dipped in the wine and you don't take the wine and the bread separately. Our confession of faith and our book of church order are quite clear. But when there was an overture uh, that we uh, affirm that, well, then the response was it's quite clear. Well, it's quite clear why are people doing it. If right. they're doing it, why isn't there a matter of discipline? So we've got these minor, relatively speaking, issues percolating, and the arguments for intinction, there's not one of them that was biblical. Um, are the, um, the, the insider movement report. The insider mm-hmm. movement is a, uh, an attempt to, it's a, it's a mission philosophy that encourages Muslims, and now I understand uh, uh, Hindus uh, and others, to stay within their uh, pagan religion and hide the fact that they're Christians and influence from the inside out. We had an excellent uh, study report uh, on the insider movement. Uh, there were a couple of sleepers on the committee who brought then a minority report, and one of them actually said the minority report that Allah and Jehovah are the same. And without any reflection, the assembly adopted that. And the only way that we got that turned around was to get the report recommitted uh, to, to the committee. And I just I got a message just yesterday of a guy that was talking to a pastor and an elder in a church, and uh, somehow my name came up. And you know I was a bad guy for opposing, since the Arabic Bible used Allah for Jehovah uh, for opposing that. So yeah, we've got those kind of things in our denomination, but they are the minority uh, at this point. If God would have mercy on us, then we'll see a change. Uh, it would, it's my hope that uh, those who are unhappy with the confessional church uh, would, uh, rather than try to change the confessional church, start another denomination. I think they have every right to do so. They don't have the right to try to change the confessional church. Now, if we get to the point, George, uh, of having to consider leaving, you know, this is hypothetical, as you rightly point out in your question. Uh, what I don't want to see is a shattering, a splitting, individuals acting, churches acting, going three or four different directions. It's my desire, and I've talked to some others about this, and when it's time, I trust that we'll work together to do this, would be to do exactly what we did when we formed the Presbyterian Church in America. This probably started in 1972. and we'll have a convocation of sessions where the uh, sessions... Uh, and if it were a session, ministers and elders that thought we were at the point of, of having to make a decision would come. Uh, we would talk about the issues. We would hear presentations from uh, more conf- people at that point who would be more confessional and that we would vote that uh, if t- time to leave, we would go with denomination A or B and do that as a group. So I think that is the best way to honor our ordination vows and our consciences. Let me follow up real quick, Dr. Pipe, a question I, I've, I've received personally from people, and, and, and I'm talking about uh, the, the church member who is not an officer. Um, they don't take vows to hold the confession and, and all these other things. Um, why is this important to them? I mean, for us, it's obviously important. It has, it's clearly important, and we argue over it, we debate it, and we should. But why is it important for the average church member? Well, 
Truth is important for the glory of God and for sanctification. And if, if an average church member is in a church that is denying, in a PCA church that's denying the confession and or scripture uh, at any point, uh, that's going to be detrimental. Now, if they're a lay person, not an office bearer, they have a different approach. They need to go to their elder, to the elders, to the pastor, and say, we have a problem with you saying these things, doing these things. Um, uh, there's also in our Book of Church order a way to register a formal complaint with the session. Mm -hmm. We have to realize that when we take a vow to promote the, the uh, peace of the church, one of the ways that our confession, our, our Book of Church order says we do that is through this formal process of a complaint. And so if the session has done something or if the pastors preached something that uh, after private conversation there's no remedy, then any any member or group of members has the right to send this complaint uh, to the session. The session is obligated to, at its first meeting after that receiving that complaint, to deal with it and answer it. If they do not change and the person thinks that he is biblically correct or confessionally correct, I don't see a difference necessarily there. Not that the confession is infallible, but on all the major issues, this would be concerning. He then may address that to the presbytery. Same thing has to happen. The presbytery has to deal with it at its first stated meeting, and it will either uh, instruct the session to reconsider or it can deny it. If it's denied, then the person has the right to take it to General Assembly. And I wish people would do these things rather than leave, mm -hmm. um, that we have a process. Uh, and in a lot of cases, our presbyteries are going to be more conservative than an individual congregation. Not always because the presbyteries are made up of individual congregations, but there's, I think, plenty of presbyteries where there's still a, a balance of conservatives there. And I use conservative against progressive, not against uh, as opposed to liberal. Um, it, if there is a better church in town, uh, you don't just jump ship, though. You've taken vows, and so I always encourage people, you go to your session and say, you know, you, you, we've talked about this and we don't agree. And rather than take this to the presbytery, I simply would like your permission to visit these other churches or other church and do that in a peaceful way. What we don't want is church hopping. We don't want people disappearing or acting uh, mm. contrary to their vows. Mm -hmm. So it's important for everybody in this whole issue. Well, thanks for writing in, George. And uh, Lord willing, I'll see you. Uh, we will see you uh, next week, I hope, at the at GA. Um, Robert writes in from uh, from Mississippi, and he has a question on the Sabbath and, and and its relationship to slavery. And the question is, I was introduced to your book, Dr. Pipe, I was introduced to your book on the Lord's Day many years ago and was thankful to the Lord to have benefited from it. I have a practical question regarding the Lord's Day that I was hoping you could answer. There appears to be at least two periods where people were unable to actually keep the Sabbath. Those two time periods are the period of Egyptian slavery with Moses and during the early church in Rome. Theoretically, if there were people in both periods who understood the Sabbath as a conviction and yet were unable to observe it due to slavery or even an inability to find work, how should their inability be viewed? It's not a work of necessity in reference to a nurse or a police officer. Thanks for any help. Thank you, Robert. I have been thinking about this question over the last year. Hmm. I think that it's uh, it's very important, even perhaps in some modern uh, applications as well. I think that uh, those who were slaves would have found themselves in a work of necessity uh, because they, they had no volition in the matter. They could appeal to their master uh, to uh, give them that day free or keep the chores minimal. The Puritans were very careful to get those who had um, servants, uh, that their activities were kept to the minimum, uh, that they were part of the church, uh, and that the master should give them at least half a day a week then for recreation, personal things, and such mm. as that. So we have to distinguish between slavery and those who uh, have jobs that put them in this situation. 
The, uh, so the slaves, I think, were, uh, it, it was an act of necessity for them. Uh, the church adjusted itself to help them uh, by having uh, apparently early morning or late night services, as we see in the case of, of Paul when uh, the young man fell asleep uh, during Paul's sermon. So, yeah, one of the ways to think about that is, I was talking to a pastor from the Philippines where people are very poor, mm. and their situation, their demand that they work on Sunday. And I've, I've wondered, I haven't reached a conclusion, but would could that fall under the idea of, of slavery? There's an economic slavery in these countries uh, I, I don't know. But you talk about inability to find work. I think that when a Christian is in a, a, a culture that does not have slavery and, and just complete abject poverty, that if it's not a work of necessity and mercy, uh, they need to uh, seek God's grace either to be freed from at that place on the Lord's Day or to get another job. Now, that's not always easy. I think at that point the church needs to come alongside to actively and say, we will help you do retraining. We will help you in this process. But hmm. we do need to understand that um, um, it is a serious sin uh, to work at a, uh, a job like that when there is a freedom uh, not not to do it. Well, thank you, uh, Robert, for the question. It was um, it's very good, and, and we need to keep thinking through these issues um, as well. Um, <clears throat> I don't have the city. I think I know it, but um, Greenwood. What is it? Greenwood, South Carolina. Thank you. Jr. writes in from Greenwood, South Carolina, and he, uh, he actually wrote me. So I'm just. I passed it on. Hey, Bill, could you ask Dr. Pipe if he address, if he'd address this issue that was raised by, let me say the name? Liam Gallagher. Okay, at 10th Pres in Philadelphia regarding Bruce Ware and Wayne Gruden's Trinitarian theology. Gallagher is claiming that, and, and we're just reading the question it was, as it was come. So Gallagher is claiming that Ware and Gruden do not have an orthodox view based on their affirmation of the phrase, quote, I hold to the eternal submission of the Son to the Father, unquote, you can read the original post here, and I'll, I'll put the link on the show notes for the program. But um, I don't know if you had time to even look at this. is like a big deal yeah, right no, now. No, this is and, and providentially, I, I read something uh, just the other day. Um, what's going on here is is these men are trying to uh, apply mm -hmm. the relationship of the Son and the Trinity to what's called complementarianism, and that is. Uh, male headship in the home and the church. Now, the key text, and let me just commend there, uh, an OP pastor, uh, Waddington, I think it's Greg Waddington, but Pastor Waddington has a very balanced piece on Ref 20, Reformation 21, where he has four aspects dealing with this. And I found it, to, in fact, I uh, shared that on my own Facebook, so you should Who have was seen the, that. Waddington. Say the okay. Uh, so what we, when Paul is talking about male headship in 1 Corinthians 11, he relates that to the relationship of the father uh, and the son. Um, let me find the uh, exact uh, reference here. Uh, So, yeah, it's verse 2. I praise you because you remember me in everything, hold and hold firmly to the traditions just as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of a woman, and God is the head of Christ. Yeah, here, yeah. Every man who has something on his head, etc. So uh, part of the problem, I think, has been a failure properly to exegete this passage of Scripture. Just draw your attention to the name Christ. And this is the same attack that Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons use against evangelical Christianity. Christ is the God-man and is referring here into the estate of humiliation. 
So he came with a commission that relates back to the eternal covenant, Mm -hmm. a commission uh, to fulfill the will of the Father. He spells it out in Psalm 40, verses 6 and following. That's picked up, I think, in Hebrews uh, chapter 8. So as the God-man, on the basis of that eternal covenant, Christ the God-man was in submission to the Father in all things. So that is a proper, and I think that's Paul's argument here, that would be the proper argument. Now, the submission of the Son to the Father, eternal submission of the Son to the Father, in terms of their being, I think is a misunderstanding of uh, the Nicene position on the, uh, uh, the Trinity. We could say the Father is the acting head of the Trinity in that he is the one who primarily is referred to as the decree, the Son, the accomplisher, and the Spirit, the perfecter, but there's no subordination in that. The Nicene Creed says that the Son proceeds from the fa- uh, is begotten of the Father and the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. That's not talking about subordination. Right. Now, there are two ways to understand that. The fairly historical position before Calvin was that the Son eternally received his being from the Father, and the Spirit eternally proceeded from the two of them. There's no submission in that. Uh, Calvin, and I agree with Calvin here, rightly asserted that uh, no that all members of the Godhead are uh, um, of eternally in existence as the Godhead. And so there's no personal, or excuse me, there's no subsistence of the one in the other. And in fact, it is the personal attribute of Son that the second person uh, is begotten of the Father and the personal attribute of spirit, the spirated one, proceeding from the Father and the Son. And I think Calvin is correct there. But in neither case is there subordination of the one to the other. So when if these men are saying that there's a subordination in the Trinity that is the basis of complementarianism, I think they're wrong. Hmm. If they're saying there's a subordination in what we would call the economic trinity, and that is the Son coming as the God-man to do the will of the Father, then I don't have have a problem with that. So I've not uh, fleshed out exactly um, how they're putting this, but I think that my answer is balanced enough that you can look at their position and see if uh, Gallagher's right. Now, the other plea that that Waddington makes uh, that I think is very important is that we're dealing with evangelicals, and we need to have good, strong debate, but we need to avoid the the acerbic and vitriolic aspects of it and uh, continue to talk to each other. The the article Dr. Pipe is referring to uh, has referenced uh, both on his Facebook page and here on the program is and you just Google this, Some Thoughts on the Current Complementarian Trinitarian Civil War. That's the title of the article that he has referenced. Okay, so, and I will add that to the show notes uh, section as well when this gets released. And speaking of released the podcast, I, I get questions from listeners occasionally um, looking for their discount codes for Banner. They may have heard the program live, and so they think at that point, then I'm going to send those. That's not how it works. I just want to be very clear so um, everybody's on the same page. Um, Once it gets released to the general public, the recording goes out, which is usually two or three weeks, maybe four weeks later than the actual live program. That's when our librarian here at the seminary will send that information to you. So just um, housekeeping, if you want to call it that, but just understand that that's how it works. And so it's not that I'm trying to hide from you. It's just <laughs> I get this question almost every month now, and I just want to be real clear about that. Well, Bill, I want to talk about three things that are going to happen in the month of August yep. here at the seminary. Uh, the first full week of August, we've got a delightful we, – we do a, a summer institute every first week of August. And, and this summer, uh, Chad Van Dixhorn, who is uh, – probably the leading 
living expert in the Westminster Assembly, is doing a thing on a pastoral work and uh, the Westminster Assembly. Uh, it is dynamite. And mm-hmm. so you may come and take this course uh, as a student for MDiv credit, even if from another school. You may come as a minister and take it for, continu- for continuing ed credits. You get three continuing ed credits. Uh, or you can simply come. Uh, you pay the same amount of money uh, if you don't take it for, th- for the uh, credit, uh, but come as uh, one who's not going to commit to doing the the bit of hands-on work that's necessary. So that's going to be great. It's going to be followed up the very next week by Dr. Wilborn's a special course that he's inherited from Dr. Smith on uh, the history of Southern Presbyterianism that includes a, a wonderful historical tour in Columbia and Charleston. Uh, so those who have been on this uh, tour and in this class know how rich it is. And I think it's balanced you know, in terms of today's uh, concerns and such as that. And then the 20th, I think it is, is that right? Dr. McGraw has developed a new course on uh, reformed scholasticism as well as historical uh, methodology. And he's going to be offering that. I think it's the week of the I, I'm trying to find 20th. it now. I don't know that the website's been updated with that information. Let me bring, pull it up here quickly. Um, no. And this is going to be great as well. You can either take this course for credit. Again, if you're doing graduate work elsewhere, you would profit from it. Uh, Mark Jones has said there's no course like this being offered in America. Uh, and you can take it uh, or you can audit uh, this course as well. Uh, I'm hoping to be able to sit in there at least for uh, a good portion it's it. it's August 16th to the 19th. So it's right after then. This will be the third week of, of August. And you can also take that course uh, by our web uh, course. So you can actually take it live online. So you've got two ways to take it. And I really encourage uh, you, you to sign up. For, so we have to make sure this podcast goes out recorded a good bit before well, these see, things take yeah, place. Today's June 14th, and so it's slated to come out. First week in July, so good, yeah, it'll be good. more than very good, early enough. All right. So that that wraps up our questions. I mean, we're, in other words, um, the queue, as it were, is emptied. <laughs> it usually is. Um, it, it, try as I might to slow my brother down a little bit, so we leave a few left over. <laughs> so I'm not killing everybody on Twitter and Facebook every month with please. There's been a number of times we've had a few left over. Yeah, but uh, however, I. Send your questions. It really doesn't matter, you know, what the issue is. I mean, if it's Lord's Day, if it's this issue with subordinationism within the Trinity, um, you got questions about what happened in Orlando. I, that we don't. We want to hear from you. In fact, we also will be having reports on the various assemblies. I forgot to mention that. Uh, so the OP assembly, we're wrapping up this week. Yep. We'll have a report on that. We'll have a report on the PCA assembly. You're going to do ARP Synod, RCUS. We, do, we are. I just need to get some approvals from you as far as who I think we can use yep. for that. Um, and the other thing we're working on, I just was thinking about this this morning in, in light of one of our graduates who is looking for support. And um, I got to thinking about our, our graduates that are laboring overseas as well as in the United States in and, and some somewhat difficult circumstances as, as small churches and whatnot and maybe doing brief segments and updates on what, what's going on with them so that the listeners can at least pray for them and their ministry and their work. And so um, we're working on that right now with my assistant and um, Dr. Piper, and we're going to get a list of guys together from the, the administration here to start doing something like that. We're highlighting our graduates in the e-newsletter as well. Yep. So. And so we're going to marry all this up as best if we can. If any of our hearers don't get the e-newsletter, it's, it's really a profitable piece to mm-hmm. get a hold of. Mm-hmm. And you can just go to info GPTS and and sign up for that. Yep. Well, it's a good. It was a good program. And um, go to the website confessingyourhope.com. That all the summer dates. Um, you know, Dr. Piper plugs them in between his travels. And well, you might as well tell him where you're going. After GA, you're going to Brazil, right. I believe. In two weeks. I'll be in Brazil for two weeks, doing two conferences and two churches. Mm. Uh, there'll be no rule vacation time for me. My wife, Lord willing, will get to rest some. Although the, the major conference is at a wonderful resort 
on the Atlantic Ocean. So Is there a golf course the there? afternoons are free. No, I don't think so. So, <laughs> uh, And then we will leave uh, Sao Paulo on the 13th and fly to South Africa where uh, I go. we go each summer. Uh, the seminary has an MA program in mm-hmm. connection with the Wycliffe Theological College. Yep. So I will be preaching two Sundays, doing a Bible conference down in the Cape, and then teaching a course, Introduction to Reformed Theology. Well, so pray pray for these trips and, and the influence. And there'll, be web, there'll be blogs, and Lord willing, even more pictures as Bill teaches me how to do that uh, on the, on the uh, josephpiper.com. I, I always fe- tr- start trembling when I, we talk about teaching technology. I get scared. <laughs> Okay. I'd wrap it up, Bill. <laughs> You'll just send me the pictures. I'll do it myself. But um, be praying for that and those things. And then pray for pray for um, the incoming students for the fall semester here at the seminary. Um, we got a number of gentlemen pray coming. Pray as well. We're in a great financial strait right now. We've got two weeks to, to meet a very major uh, hmm. uh, uh, giving a request. That's why the season is going before July 1st. Uh, so pray about that, and if you can help us with a year-end gift, it would be greatly appreciated. There's some nice uh, books attached to that as well, and you can set it on the website. Yep, questions about that, info at gpts.edu, and someone will get back to you very quickly. So until next time, when we sit down with Alan Harmon to talk about the call to the Christian ministry, um, we do thank you for listening to this particular edition of Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. And God bless. God bless.